to This Week in Higher Ed. Mike Palmer here, joined as always by Dr. Terry Gibbons. Hi. Terry, how are you doing? <laughs> I am awesome. Actually, can I make my big announcement here, Mike? Please, you can do okay. whatever you know, Terry. You can kind of do whatever you like here. Also, uh, Dr. Deborah Mashik is joining us as well. So quickly, uh, Deborah, welcome to the show as well. We'll be talking to you more later. Great yes. to be here. Thank you both for having me. Awesome. Yes. Well, yeah, let's dispense with the amenities, Terry. Yes. So my big announcement is that I have accepted a faculty position at McGill University in Montreal, Quebec, Canada, and I'll be starting that this fall. But that does not mean that Brighter Higher Ed or this week in higher ed is going away. We're going to be continuing with these amazing discussions because we love them and it's a great thing to do. So I will be uh, in the political science department and working on some diversity stuff and it's going to be great. In some ways, it may make this show, believe it or not, it might make this show even better, Terry, is what I was thinking, because mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. it's already been really interesting. But now you're you're leading a strategic effort in some of the topics that we talked about more in a theoretical way. That's right. You're now doing a little more of the the hands on work. And uh, and then and then sadly, you know, we always talk about what's what's new and newsy. Uh, and uh, sadly, the incidents that are on the the the, the social justice side are, are rearing their heads again around uh, the police and uh people of color particularly black men uh where we've been seeing more of that lately so so sadly that lane that lane is going to be wide open uh but the nice thing is i think you're on a it sounds like you're on a the positive side of a lot of these conversations that's right and um can you can you share any more now or is this this yeah, really no, I can. Oh, Absolutely. yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, so yeah. I mean, the interesting thing to me is that and the reason I was so those of you who know me know I've been at, you know, this is my third year being out of academe. I was the provost at Menlo College as UT Austin before. And, you know, I really thought this might be me just, you know, going out and continuing to do the great work we've been doing. But um, and that will continue. But they, you know, they kind of made me an offer I couldn't refuse. And, you know, as you know, there's a lot of efforts out there to focus on, you know, diversity more generally. But this was the first, you know, project I had seen where they developed a strategy around anti-Black racism. Mm -hmm. And I was just like, whoa, whoa, you know, that's so, it's very specific, it's very targeted, there's money attached to it, and they really want me to come in and help them to not just hire Black faculty, but to work on student issues, to work on you know, help them with staff issues to, you know, you know, my title will be provost's um, uh, uh, academic lead and advisor on issues of anti-Black racism. And so it's a real acknowledgement of the fact that, you know, and obviously they have other pro- projects around Indigenous and, and other uh, minorities, but, you know, that it's so specific and acknowledging that, you know, there's these issues with, um, you know, people from uh, in the African diaspora more generally. So that's what really attracted me and that, that, you know, they made the commitment to this way back in September, long before I was, you know, even considering any of this. And, you know, the fact that they reached out to me, well, was kind of a mutual interest, but yeah. yeah, So I think it's been a really great opportunity. Well, it will be, it hasn't happened, started yet, but it will be a really great opportunity to, to test things out. And I really want to treat it like a research um, project um, Mm -hmm. where we collect data, where we, we do things around this that, um, you know, can help us to understand what works and what doesn't. Yeah. So Terry, I just, I've got to jump in here and say, I've got goosebumps hearing you talk about this because it sounds like such a 
a systems approach that it's not just the idea of like, we should go do something, but actually putting the institutional weight behind it by having all of these different facets and by having the money behind it. And that's thrilling. I'm so excited Mm -hmm. for you. Congratulations. Yes. Thank you so much. Yeah. And that that was uh, Deborah, who we introduced uh, briefly earlier. Uh, Deborah, can you just catch uh, our audience up uh, quickly on who you are and uh, where you come at the world of higher ed from? Yeah, of course. And uh, my apologies that I just like, oh, I'm going to jump in. No, it's great. And we're going to go with this. Um, I'm Deb Mashik, and I am the principal at Myco Consulting, and we do higher ed collaboration, so helping uh, interinstitutional collaborations develop and prosper. And I come to you today as a former faculty member from Harvey Mudd College, so I was there for 14 years as the psychologist in the Department of Humanities, Social Sciences, and the Arts. And um, for those who don't know, Harvey Mudd is is within the Claremont College's context. So there are literally five amazing institutions that are co-located on a single square mile of property. So that was where I cut my teeth on how to do inter-institutional collaboration. Mm -hmm. And then um, in late 2017, early 2018, I made the move from higher ed over to the nonprofit sector and was the executive director of Paradox Academy, which is a nonpartisan nonprofit focused on increasing open inquiry, viewpoint diversity, and constructive disagreement across lines of difference in higher ed. Mm-hmm. And just recently uh, stepped away from that position to launch my, or to go full-time into the consulting work I had been doing kind of, you know, on the down low, behind the scenes, on the side over yeah. the of years. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So lot, lots, lots to talk about uh, there. I was mentioning to Terry as, as we were uh, doing our intensive uh, prep for this session uh, that uh, there's some interesting parallels between the work Terry's been doing, particularly at Brighter Higher Ed, and the work you've been doing uh, since you put up your own shingle and have been uh, a consultant helping folks within higher ed. And I think that was going to be the main place where we're trying to keep coming back to maybe each of your uh, respective perspectives, because I think they're a little bit different, um, but uh, but they're also, there are some commonalities. And then your background is more on the, the psychology side, whereas Terry's a little more on the political science uh, front. I do think, you know, we should spend some time talking about, you know, even if it is talking about how exhausted we all feel in response to the incidents uh, of late, where like, you know, and then, how might higher ed navigate uh, its response to the the cultural phenomena of the day, which also include the vaccine. So like we keep on talking about the vaccine and the virus and social justice. And like, that's been a pretty steady refrain for the last year that, you know, it feels like a year we've been doing it. Six months we've been doing this. I don't however long we've been doing it (laughs) in a while. But uh, but I'd love to get some initial impressions, uh, maybe more on a like we usually start on a more personal level, too. Yeah. Uh, but um, but actually, Mike, you know, it has been you know, a year ago we were doing our weekly webinars about covid and, and yeah. things. You know, I mean, I don't know that we even a year ago imagined that we'd be talking about a vaccine by now. Right. I mean, right. you know, it, it's amazing. But we're also talking about the fact that there's, you know, distribution and, and access issues around the the, uh, the vaccine. And, um, you know, I think it's been a, you know, it's been a, a just interesting kind of melange of things that have been 
you know, kicking in in terms of, um, you know, the, the protests last summer and the ongoing protests and Black Lives Matter and yeah. and then, you know, COVID and this and that. And so I, it's just, it feels like we're just under constant assault. <laughs> yeah. Well, right. and, even, and, and then we have the combination of the, the George Floyd cases yeah. happening while a, a, an additional, like in Brooklyn Center, it's basically the same location to a large extent, s- same or similar police force and another you know black black man dead um at the hands of the police and now you know it sounds like the the officer has since resigned but if but i just find it and then deborah maybe love to get some of you more your perspective on this too um the amount of psychic reserves that i have that we all have like they're kind of depleted uh to the point where like you kind of want to have a an authentic empathetic politically justified response to these things but but there's also part of me that is just you know wants to take a nap right i i have this uh, we were talking in the pre-show about my my love of metaphors and one of the metaphors that i just keep coming back to is it feels kind of like we're walking on shifting sands through a blizzard to land on a moving target and maybe on a tightrope that's actually tied between two helicopters. And now somehow there, over this past couple of days with the, I, I don't even want to call it the, the new violence because it just keeps happening, but there's something about, it feels like we're on a lazy, not a, a lazy season, the thing that keeps going around and around. And it, it feels like we're both in replay, but also going in slow motion. And yeah, I, so a lot of metaphors in there, but this idea of, emotional reserves feel totally depleted and yeah I am there with you mm-hmm. and then and then folks are looking for help in higher ed uh, which is something that I think both of you have uh, experience with you know Terry you in particular uh, I'm not sure as much Deb whether you've done this but uh, you know you've been on you've been delivering diversity and inclusion workshops and training um, what happens when you're in the middle of that? And then stuff like this, ha- like how? Oh, uh, I was, you- yeah. yeah. Yeah, I was I doing a, hold that. Well, I was doing a training. Well, actually we were on our webinar when January 6th happened, yes, right? I remember. Yep. And then I was doing a workshop that Friday. And what happens is you just say to everybody, okay, we're throwing the syllabus out the window and let's just, you know, let's wrap. Yeah. <laughs> For those who are old enough to remember, you know, what we just, let's just talk. Yeah. Um, and it's, it tends to, you know, it becomes a much different thing because everybody has their emotions around it and you can't deny it, right? You, you can't just say, oh, we're going to just go on and do our, you know, you have to acknowledge. So the, the number one thing is to acknowledge, you know, don't try to paper over what's happening and to say, okay, you know, we're, we're, we're going to focus on your, what your needs are right now. Mm-hmm. And, you know, your need to talk about what's happening and process. And so what I've learned in those kinds of situations is that it's, it's about processing mm-hmm. um, and talking things through and having a, a group of people who you trust to be able to share things with. So that, that's what I found is, is most helpful in these situations. And I, for those who are on Clubhouse, actually, I'm going to be doing a talk. On, we're going to have a discussion Friday at 2 p.m. Pacific, 5 p.m. Eastern, uh, part of my Radical Empathy Club to talk about, you know, how do you respond? How, what, how can you take action again on these topics around police violence and, and yeah. so on? So, yeah. 
Yeah. And the name is Dante Wright to, you know, to, it's sadly you have to remember names mm-hmm. sooner now, but hopefully, you know, we're not, we're putting this in context in terms of when folks are listening to this, this is, you know, within a few days of the, the, the murder of Dante, Dante Wright. Looks like it'll, it'll be manslaughter charges that are brought up uh, because uh, the officer is claiming that she was reaching for her pistol and grabbed her taser uh, yeah, sorry, reaching for the taser. Yeah, that would have been better. Yeah. Uh, in fact, if we could, maybe that's a new training uh, idea is yes. uh, get them to make the mistake in the other direction. But, um, and that's happening while um, I think it's now shifted to uh, Derek Chauvin's defense is presenting mm-hmm. now, um, which um, just puts everything already on edge, uh, particularly in Minnesota. Uh, and then I think that's now spreading uh, across the country. So what's going to happen in terms of the verdict on the, the Chauvin case? What's the response going to be like there? And then what will the policing be like in Minnesota in particular, but then also across the country as uh, the temperature gets dialed back up on things that had kind of dialed back to a simmer since last summer? Do we mm-hmm. know when to expect a verdict? Is there a timeline given yet? It's a good question. I'm not sure. I think it may depend on how long the defense, because it didn't, uh, I thought the prosecution already did. did Yes, the prosecution rested there on the defense now. So it just depends on how many um, witnesses and so on they decide to bring. And then, of course, you just, you know, we don't know how long the jury will deliberate. Yeah, but the closing closing arguments would be an interesting thing to from what I heard, and I haven't really watched a lot of this firsthand, I heard that the prosecution did a nice job. Um, mm-hmm. But now, you know, defense, professional defense attorneys are something that um, are, are a good thing in many ways in our society. But it's difficult when you feel like they're defending someone who's guilty and they are doing a good job. But it, they probably are going to do an OK job uh, with the defense. And then it's going to be left to the jury. And I certainly don't have a read on which way this will go. I'm, I'm not an expert uh, by any stretch. Um, it does feel like it could go either way. I was going to point out that you mentioned January 6th. And one of the things that was so bizarre about that day is we had no idea. At least I had no idea that was coming. And all of a sudden I'm on the call. And, and just how the rapidity with which the emotional response bubbled up and and now something kind of different is going to unfold because we probably will eventually have some sense of when the news will be delivered. Mm-hmm. Um, and so kind of stealing ourselves for that. And again, knowing that we, even though we can prepare for the possibilities, I don't think we can perfectly predict what that personal emotional experience is going to be like for everyone, mm-hmm. for ourselves even. Yeah, absolutely. And it'll depend on the the, the charge that he, if he is convicted, which charges he convicted on is another element where depending on how do people respond just to the fact that there is a guilty verdict or is it, does it depend on which level of charge he's found guilty of? Because I believe there's a few different ones that are, that the jury right. could choose depending on whether the, you know, how willful and heinous an act, you know, I'm not sure the exact uh, legal language there, but there are different levels of culpability and there. And then the sentencing would be ch- connected to that. Uh, and then in this other case, um, it does look like it, 
it will be a pretty straightforward manslaughter case uh, in uh, the Dante Wright, um, at least the way it's being characterized right now. Um, but um, but it's just crazy. Also, that's another element of the psychic uh, depletion that I'm feeling these days uh, is just keeping up with all of this stuff is cognitively exhausting. Like just trying to like stay current enough so that you don't say the wrong thing and you're actually like aware enough, you know, cause even, you know, I, I live in Brooklyn, uh, New York here. Like it's pretty easy to not be as caught up as the other people around you. Uh, so like there is this pressure um, to, to keep up. And then meanwhile, you know, higher ed keeps on, Humming? Well, that's, you're not I don't just know. up on you know legal arguments and yeah. there, but you also need to be an epidemiologist to be yes. right. along with everything happening with the vaccine. Oh, oh my God, yeah. Oh. Use that one and higher ed's reacting like shutting down the vaccination clinics based on the news from uh was it I don't even know, was that yesterday or today? Yeah, Johnson and Johnson. Yeah, yeah. that is yeah. he said, okay, let's let's put a hold on the the J and J. Um, oh my gosh, but right, it's change over change over change. Yeah. And the Johnson, because like we, maybe we could pivot into the, the vaccine and Corona aspect of the, because they're kind of two sides of the same coin too, in a lot of ways. And, you know, mm -hmm. Terry, I'd love to get more. I know you've talked about that in the past, like how these things are very closely related. Uh, you know, if you look at the health outcomes around the pandemic, if you look mm -hmm. at the, uh, the, the uprising really that we've been seeing in response, not just to the the pandemic, obviously there are these social justice issues and policing issues, but it is all as this institutional structural racism becomes more readily apparent really to everyone, how do we collectively respond? Um, and then there's still plenty of blind spots too, because now the culture war is rearing its head again. And I think some folks are, you know, even we talked about it uh, previously, the uh, the Trump administration was was trying to outlaw uh, a lot of the diversity training that was mm -hmm. happening on campuses, yeah. uh, which is also interesting. You know, you'll be in you'll be at McGill, which is in Montreal, which uh, will be governed more by at least at a federal level by the the Canadian government. Yes. But um, it is a very interesting time to be thinking about these two sides of uh, a, a similar coin, um, and. Um, the vaccine reluctance is the other component of, uh, I guess, the intersection between those two things. And that's why the Johnson & Johnson pause that we're going through right now is particularly troubling because many of the cases where Johnson & Johnson would make the most sense are going to be with populations that are hardest to reach. Yeah. Well, also, a lot of universities were counting on Johnson, or still are counting, That's right. and I suspect they will still continue to go forward with using Johnson & Johnson, although they're saying that they prefer for younger people to get the other uh, vaccines. So, for example, here in where I live, they are, we're ready to, well, actually, the national, they want us to shift to 16 and, un, and older, mm -hmm. um, but they want to make sure these the younger people get the Pfizer or Moderna and not the Johnson & Johnson. So right. that's a whole, that's a big, you know, so that's going to be an issue for higher ed and institutions that were counting on Johnson & Johnson. Mm -hmm. um, there are also for, a lot of 
conversations around requiring, is it okay to require the students to be yes, vaccinated? Exactly. And what about the employees, especially where, you know, these vaccinations were approved under, you know, under duress, like these are the emergency approvals. They haven't gone through, you know, the full regular slate of approval and testing and whatnot. So a lot of resistance to requiring it of employees because, you, you know, people can still work and whatnot. So there are a lot of complicated conversations and a lot of viewpoints right worth listening to and digging into to figure out what's going to work for each institution. Right. But uh, every day there's new institutions saying that they're going to start requiring students to uh, have the vaccine to enroll in the fall. And this is not new. It's so funny. People are complaining about, oh, vaccine passports. And I was like, when I was at UCLA in the 90s, I had to get the, you know, my vaccines up to date. And actually, you know, it was so it was a requirement for me to enroll. I had and same thing at University of Texas at Austin when I was a staff person or a faculty member, you know, I had to have all my vaccines up to date. And there's a good reason for that, right? Because it's so funny, you know, when people ask me, I say, basically, I live on a, or I work on a campus full of vectors, you know, meaning, you know, kids who are carrying all kinds of diseases, because I, I remember I was in a um, airport, uh, probably a little over a year ago, because it was before we, you know, and I was, you know, sitting there doing my usual 20 seconds washing my hands. Um, and so I, I was, you uh, somebody's like, oh, are you a nurse or something? No, I I, I work on college campuses. So (laughs) I'm I'm around all these disease vectors. (laughs) And and plus, if you have kids in high, well, if you have kids, period. I just remember when we first put my son in in daycare, my older son in daycare, um, you know, it was just, you know, he would just bring stuff home. I mean, we'd all get sick and yeah. you would, you just, the first year of daycare, you just assume you're going to be sick most of the time and your child's mm-hmm. going to be sick most of the time. And then you get through it and then, oh, you yeah. Know, yeah. I considered that like, okay, let's take my immune system to the gym. As I said, my, my kid out to daycare, we're going to see what I can create over the next year. Yeah. <laughs> Although I think Deb mentioned a, a really interesting point there as well. When when you go for your vaccine, because I'm halfway into my, my Pfizer regime uh, so far, but uh, signing the emergency use authorization paperwork is a reminder that science is still in flight on these things. And I could see more of a case to opt out uh, in, in a genuine way, depending on how you're thinking about risk and the way you're thinking about this stuff. Um, I understand the, the responsibility that a lot of us have to encourage everyone to opt in. But it is a little different from uh, like mumps, measles, rubella vaccine, or some of the other vaccines that are now, um, there have been so many millions of clinical trials and real trials uh, so that everyone knows the actual efficacy and they understand the full extent of the side effects. Because even now we don't know, I think the CDC was just saying it could go, uh, it looks like uh Pfizer and Moderna are good for nine months, I think was the latest we heard. And that's because those most advanced trials are the furthest out that we actually have any of the science for. So mm-hmm. so I, I thought that was a really good point. And it is a reminder of your other point, Deb, that like we've all had to ramp up our understanding of epidemiology. Uh, but then when you actually get to the point of being vaccinated, like you're not really reading the fine print like when i was when no, i went to the, I was like, I went to the walgreens they, they they bait and jabbed me i signed up for moderna and they were like oh sorry we're out of moderna we only we only have pfizer and i was like okay you know like what was i what you i guess do? i could have walked out you know like and that's where like on the one hand i do think about like the the patient's bill of rights and like 
any of us has a right to our own just healthcare decisions at any point along the line. But, um, but it does feel like it's almost like, um, it's almost like a wartime footing where like, this is an act of civic responsibility to a certain extent, more so than just an act of, you know, what should I do for my, my personal health and well-being? And I think that's another place where trying to predict my emotional reaction is, I was like, oh, I'll be happy. But, oh, I had tears welling up. I was so, it just felt like this relief and of the sense of community. Like I was, was locking eyes with the woman across getting the shot at the same time. It was like this bonding moment. And, you know, there's something communal and real and just raw about about all of this. Mm -hmm. But, you know, just being out walking this morning and seeing people, you know, you, you know, they're older and it's like, I'm sure they're vaccinated. It's like, we're all smiling and saying hi to each other. And, and you know, it's like, yes, we're vaccinated. Right. But you know, I, I so Mike, I'm going to pivot here because yeah. I'm, I'm dying to talk to Deborah. I shouldn't say that word dying, but anyway, to Deborah about, um, you know, this institutional collaborations, because Deborah, you saw my article I'd written on LinkedIn and, and actually my friend, Gary Stalker and I have have been talking about this for a long time. And, you know, I always use the Claremont schools as one of my examples of a very successful, you know, basically a collaboration across five institutions. And that's what Gary always says, you know, you five to 10 institutions should get together and, you know, share resources and, and all of that. And so I'm really curious, you know, what just made you decide to go into this after having been at Claremont and, and what are you up to these days? Yeah. So, you know, my origin story here is that I'm trained as a close relationships researcher. So my favorite yeah. class to teach at, at Harvey Mudd or the psychology of close relationships. And my tagline was hooking up, breaking up and everything in between. And then moving that into the psychology of community building and then moving it into the psychology of collaboration. But it's all about the relationships between individuals or entities and what it means to be separate together that we all have our, you know, in our, in our romantic relationships and our parent child relationships that we have this entity that is the me and the them. And, but there's also this sense of we-ness and realizing that a lot of the theoretical frameworks that I was bringing to the romantic relationship work ended up translating beautifully when it came time to help thinking about how institutions can play better together. And Terry, you know, the, the Claremonts are often held up as like, hey, they're doing it great. They have a huge, um, the Claremont, the Claremont College's services, a whole bunch of people working behind the scenes to help make some of these collaborations possible. And even within that context, it is hard, hard, work. And that to me is where, you know, I put my scholarship hat on. It's like, how can we smooth this out? How can we make this more available? Because, you know, when, when you think through like, why should institutions collaborate in general? You know, my attitude here is, you know, you do together that which doesn't differentiate the institution. So does anyone, you know, really care where you buy your your office supplies from? Or could we just join forces, get some economy of scale there? But also, do together that which will be more magnificent than what any of you could do alone. Mm -hmm. And those two principles, you know, guide a lot, a lot of the way I approach this work. Yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, one of the questions in the, the chat is this, you know, how do we you know, do this kind of collaboration and, you know, does it make, so for example, in the social justice issues and the pandemic, I mean, did it help 
the Claremont schools, the fact that they could work together and, you know, develop their strategies um, to deal with both, you know, the social justice issues, but also the pandemic, or does it make the response less agile? Yeah, so, and I've talked to a lot of uh, consortial leaders from other consortia as well, and here's what I'm hearing, that those who have worked together before, who already had established relationships, established trust, established communication channels, they were able to pivot really quickly. Um, in part, you know, everyone had to figure out how to use Zoom, and then that actually people started to meet more frequently than they had um, prior. So where, you know, some of these consortia, so Claremont's really bizarre in that it's really that square mile, but a lot of consortia in higher ed are geographically very distributed. So some right. are nationwide, and then you'll end up these, like these regional ones, like the New York Six, they're mm-hmm. all um, small liberal arts schools in upstate New York, but they're still, you know, it's about four hours stem to stern if you were to commute. And the habit, the practice previously was, you know, get together a couple times a year and everyone would make the drive. But now everyone's facing shared challenges, trying to figure out what the heck to do. There's a new tool, this Zoom thing. Oh my gosh, this is actually working okay. And they were able to move into new habits of being and doing together really very smoothly. Um, and you know, I, I talked to Amy Cronin just earlier today, actually, and she was sharing some of the, the ways that new groups are forming or people who hadn't normally or hadn't been meeting together are now meeting together. Really cool stuff. Yeah. Very cool. And there are probably uh, universal truths about how humans connect to each other, build close relationships, build cultures, tribes, collaborations. Um, how... What are there some examples that uh, you were talking about how you liked analogies, you know, like kind of analogizing to um, uh, other ways in which relationships can work well, can work badly? Uh, are there ways that you can identify good opportunities for collaboration versus there are some cases where collaboration probably doesn't make sense. So I was wondering, based on actually both your experiences, but, but particularly you, Deb, just because I think you live and breathe this stuff. Um, what are the characteristics that signal this is a good opportunity, maybe lean into the collaboration? And then what are some of the warning signs, signposts that say, you know, the amount of effort you'd have to put in to try to build this partnership? I mean, are there some cases like that as well? Absolutely. So collaboration is a tool and it's not a tool that's going to solve every problem. It's not the right tool for the job all the time. And looking at things, you know, when you're, when you have a prospective collaborative partner and you're like, gosh, you know, kind of like if you're on online dating, like, do I want to, do I want to pursue this or not? But looking, are their values aligned here? It's not that we need to want or like all the same outcomes across the board for all things, but is there enough of a shared interest that this outcome indeed serves the respective interest and needs of both all potential collaborators that um, super important. And, and in order to have that understanding, you have to understand, you have to be able to communicate honestly about what your needs and interests are. So if you are like, we have got to have, you know, a diversity training program with these features and those particular features are like, I, I'm not sure if that's what we want. You have to communicate that so that you can find the alignment so that you can then do the intensive project management, the intensive really defining what that collaboration looks like to move forward. The red flags are things like if someone 
suddenly stops asking about your needs and interests or how is this going for you? If they start strong arming decisions, if decisions start being made um, in back in back rooms where you're not actually part of the conversation, you know, same things like in a, frankly, in a dyadic relationship. So if someone's making all the decisions and being bossy boss, not necessarily the best, uh, the best dynamic for, for longevity yeah. and well-being. I think that's one of the, the tough things about collaborations is like, you know, it, especially when you're dealing with university presidents or college presidents and, you know, they're used to being the top dog and, you know, it's like, how do you get them to, to really agree to, you know, be collaborative? Yeah. yeah and, oh, I was just going to say part of it is really, what are your, what are you interested in? Like what, makes this valuable to you and having those established relationships where we've practiced being and doing together before is so incredibly helpful to help um, leave the egos and the logos at the door. I like to say, you know, that I love that phrase. Yeah. And also (laughs) being able to trust that, you know, Terry, you and I are going to have this conversation. We're going to, we're going to show our real stuff and you're not going to go blab it to other people. Like there's, there's trust on how, how we relate. Yeah, it, it, it reminds me a bit about, uh, you know, professional mediators and arbitrators where there are actually a set of skills, uh, same thing with counselors, uh, you know, psychologists, group therapy folks. Um, there is a process that frequently benefits from someone from the outside facilitating it. So that's another element of this that I think it would be interesting for both of you to expand on, because it sounds like you've both been in this space working with higher ed. Um maybe more than one institution at the same time, frequently having a third party or uh, a disinterested, um, you know, UN observer can really help with the the conflict avoidance at the top too, so that you don't mm-hmm. accidentally stumble into something that really would be more about m- miscommunication, but then also, uh, you know, conflict resolution. Cause I think there's a point where like you, a professional, from the outside, a consultant, a a therapist, a guide can frequently build the safety so that you can actually go after the conflicts and resolve them. Because like a less mature relationship frequently avoids all that and just wants to kind of surf on, we good? We're good? Okay, cool. And frequently you need somebody from the outside to kind of like make it safe to begin with. But then once it's safe enough, then to actually do emotional work. And lots of times Mm -hmm. people don't want to do that type of work. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So that neutral outside facilitator, like that's what I do. And I, and Terry, I'm excited to hear your thoughts on this too. And, um, you know, even if you have someone who has the right skill set and, you know, inclination on the inside, the perception will be that they're, uh, that they're coming at it from a, a biased lens or they might actually be making decisions and assumptions based on their internal knowledge that doesn't actually translate to the other institutions. So I totally agree um, with this idea of having that, that third party who holds the outcome, who holds the collaboration as the goal, as this, you know, the sturdy container for that to happen. Um, and then this idea of conflict, I think it's actually a really good thing when it kicks up because it care, it says that the people in the room care enough to actually be there, that they're engaged, that they're trying to figure it out, that there's, there's something at stake, that this thing really matters. Mm-hmm. And then finding a way to navigate that with, um, with grace and, you know, honoring those individual needs and interest 
but also continuing to see like, is it, does it still feel right to push toward this goal? And you know, again, what's at stake here? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, I was just going to comment on the fact that it, you know, it requires being able to manage vulnerability because, you know, these people are walking into a room because, you know, obviously the, the issue we're dealing with for high, a lot of these institutions, especially the smaller privates, is this idea of, you know, are we going to survive? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you yeah. know, are we, how are we going to make it through with all this upheaval and mm-hmm. all the costs they've had to take on in the last year? And so, you know, there's a lot of vulnerability out there. And, you know, for example, here, we just saw Mills College make the decision that they're not going to have undergraduates anymore in the fall. And, you know, they're basically shifting focus. I mean, it's interesting because they have a large enough endowment to continue doing something. They just don't have a large enough endowment to continue bleeding, you know, mm-hmm. money and, and, and funds uh, as an undergraduate institution. And yeah. I think, this is a great time to bring up the recently announced um, the Transformational Partnerships Fund. Mm-hmm. So it's a, a philanthropic endeavor that's going to help resource institutions who are interested in exploring the possibilities of doing something together. And that something might be this big dramatic merger, but there are so many ways of partnering and doing together that fall far much mm-hmm you know, much less severe than a merger where it might be shared academic programs or shared yep. um, back office support. And so, mm-hmm. but it can be so risky. So this point of managing the vulnerability, Terry, just really resonates with me. Like it can be really risky if anyone in your community even hears that That's there's right. a conversation happening like this. That's so right. one of the things I'm totally jazzed about with this transformational partnership fund is that they're saying we can come in and help you or support this confidentially, quietly help you figure out some of the steps um, to make it possible just to explore without commitment, without downwind consequences. Mm-hmm. And who's, I haven't heard of this before, who's sponsoring this? So it, the the lead, um, as I understand it, the lead on it is Sea Change Partners, but they're doing it in collaboration with a lot of other funders, including, I haven't written down here, um, ECMC Foundation. C- oh, yeah. And then uh, additional support with, from Ascendium Education mm-hmm. Group and Kesky Foundation. Mm-hmm. And they're particularly interested, you know, they on their website, they have these, once so tying back into the diversity and equity question, these, they, the stats that they're representing here are that 12% of all students currently are enrolled in colleges that are at risk. Mm-hmm. And 19% of all black students are currently mm-hmm. enrolled at colleges that are at risk. So, you know, the, the students we most need to help or support create equitable spaces for are at these institutions that really need to be thinking about how they're going to thrive, survive, make it through the, the vulnerabilities here. Yeah. yeah, and I know that some of the HBCUs have, have been kind of looking at these, these things, although they just got yet another bailout. So um, <laughs> they'll be doing a lot. They got, I think a lot of their debt was just canceled, um, which was kind of through the federal government. So that's a very, very good thing. Um, but I still think, you know, I, in some ways, I wish we weren't looking at this in the context of crisis, right? Because what I would prefer is that we would say, what's the best format for us as, you know, a liberal arts college? Should we be doing these shared things? And, you know, and it shouldn't be, like I said, because we're, we're worried about money, it should be because we want to do the thing that's best for the students. Mm-hmm. Actually, well, advance these missions we care so much about. I was like, 
how many of these missions, if you look at them, the right answer is, you know what we should do? We should go behind closed walls, totally immure ourselves and not, and I, I don't think anyone actually thinks that or says that, but if you, if you play with the extreme, it's like, why, why does that make sense? It doesn't. Yeah. Well, I think it also, if you think about it from the perspective of the, the student or the learner, um, there is that sense of affiliating with, that's my school, that's my tribe. Mm-hmm. You know, getting back to the way we were thinking about it before, it's, it's my ident- I identify. Identity, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But at the same time, like if that identity could be broadened in some context, and that's where I'm really curious about whether, what each of you might think about um, the role that this online transformation that we've seen might have on the ability for the student to cross honor uh, for the, I guess for the universities to cross honor their 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 programs like if you want to take a semester online was one program that was like this uh, I believe it's still in effect but the idea that you know the curriculum that maybe their courses or programs that can only be offered at one of the Claremont McKenna schools if you're trying to be student-centric can you enable ways for them to be a little more interchangeable, interoperable? Because it does feel like a, a natural extension of the, the race to Zoom that we've all seen, that we all know there are some components of programs that are no longer gonna be limited by geography. So it does feel like, thinking about it from the learner's perspective, if you're going to a small private liberal arts college, they may not have everything that you want to study, but if if there was more of an opportunity to pick up on some of the curricula from partner schools, that sounds like a winner. Uh, what am I missing as the guy who's not inside uh, inside on higher ed? Like, why is it that they're concerned that those dynamics will become competitive and ultimately they'll they'll lose? I'm just wondering why there aren't more. Or is that something you're anticipating? Are we expecting there to be more of those types of uh, partnerships uh, emerging heading forward? So there are a lot of those programs that exist already where like the Texas Learning Consortium, for instance, where it doesn't make sense for five different schools to to champion a, a, you know, a German program or, you know, like that. But if, you know, a couple schools have a faculty member in German, it makes perfect sense to to bring them together. so they do exist. My prediction is they're going to become more common, but there are concerns or drivers or things that are on the administrators' minds about enrollment numbers and butts and seats and how do you, the different metrics that we use. And Terry, you can speak to this you know, more solidly than I can coming from your really deep administrative background, but those things matter as metrics um, for decision-making for you know, resources. Right. Well, and we haven't even raised the issue of accreditation. (laughs) Um, You know, so you start talking data and, you know, institutional research and all of that. And then my my mind jumps immediately to accreditation issues. And so you you, like the Texas um, Language Consortium, you know, that's something that. Uh, you know, came about, I think, because of the, the, you know, the declining resources for having all these, you know, having all the same languages in one institution versus, you know, sharing across institutions. But, um, you know, the, the imperatives are hard to, to balance with the need to maintain certain requirements around accreditation. And so, um, you know, we need the accreditors to become more flexible and allow for more of this, 
you know, across campus and, and you know, in, you know, collaborations that can bring together different, um, you know, curriculum. I mean, we, we had started, you know, when I was at Menlo College, you know, we had started discussions around, um, uh, you know, this whole idea of, you uh, you know, what if we worked with Palo Alto University and on our, their psychology program and the you know, Notre Dame Denomer? I mean, we, we had started kind of having those discussions, but we just ran into so many issues around how do you coordinate classes and this and that. And so, yeah, it's, it's been interesting. This brings up for me to the, the two-year transfer in challenges. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's some similarities there. Like even if you're within the same accrediting body, the idea that this one's called Psych 100 and over here it's Psych yes. 1 are those actually comparable? Right. How do you make those decisions? But ultimately you go back to this question of what's actually in the best interest of the students. Mm-hmm. Does it make sense that they have to navigate threads and threads of complexity or is there is there a way we can make these pathways more visible and navigable? Yeah, and also, uh, you know, more on-ramps and off-ramps, uh, you know, so that if it makes sense to get in, get a certificate, in a year, get out, get back in, get your associates, get back out again, get back in, you know, like, and, and think about the full lifespan of your educational career, uh, which for all of us is going to extend for enti- our entire lives. If we want to stay relevant and employed, you have to keep learning. Uh, and then how much of that will be governed by this, you know, the sheepskin at the end of a four-year traditional uh, higher ed experience. Uh, that's another one that I think is going to be more um, disrupted by the changes we've seen, even just economically. I, th- I think people are trying to understand where are the new jobs going to be, and then what's the fastest path to reskilling, upskilling to get certified as ready for those new jobs. And um, as someone like I, I tend to look across not just higher ed. That's where I, I do think you know what's happening in the professional development and in the private sector in terms of skills and certifications. Um, you know, even, you know, Terry, I know Brighter Higher Ed has been providing programs to train people on DEI because you're not necessarily going to get that, you know, which department in higher ed is going to be accredited to give you uh, a bachelor's or an associate's or a master's degree in diversity, equity, inclusion. Probably no one because they're not going to be able to move fast enough. So I'd be curious how the two of you see it playing forward too in terms of who will the universe, are the universities just partnering with each other or are there other types of relationships and partnerships and collaborations that we should be thinking about? Yeah, the, I would say the intersector collaborations are also really important. And one that's bubbling up, um, remembering this in my mind is the, the Atlanta Oh, consortium has five of the HBCUs in it. Mm-hmm. And at one of their COVID collaborations was with the community doing workforce development and um, saying like, we, you know, we're, we got to figure out something. And so the five institutions were working on, on a piece, but it was in collaboration with the corporate sector. And so this idea that, you know, we have different, obviously different resources available, um, similar needs, we can help each other out, but it, it you got to have your head up to be able to see those and to be thinking outside the walls of your institution. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and then how, mu- how much of a, a, an industry is there that like, I, I don't want to blow up, uh, you know, either of yours respective spots, you know, but it feels like there's going to be need within higher ed in particular to have 
groups like each of yours uh, helping them navigate this. Uh, how, how do they find you and how ready are they to do this type of outreach? Because it seems like it reminds me of some of the conversations I've had about, you know, centers for teaching and learning. Like it's almost like there's too much demand for the needs to respond to the, the, the state of affairs that we're in right now, which again, is probably good for business, but it also could be overwhelming. So I'd be curious, like, how would you characterize the space that you're in and like, how do you see it heading, um, you know, in maybe the short and maybe a little longer term? Cause, uh, cause I think we're gonna start settling into something new and maybe a little bit different starting in the fall. Go ahead. Yeah. Oh, so I was gonna say that to me, the most important thing is that there are some established practices and approaches here. And so doing the professional development of reaching out, there are so many consortia, which is one model of doing together, but also a lot of really effective, inspiring cross-campus, cross-sector pieces. And I'll give a shout out here to this Association for Collaborative Leadership. This is like a, a group that gets together and figures out how to do this work well. And they're incredibly welcoming and collaborative, not surprisingly. Um, and always happy, they're always happy to help people figure out the ropes or come up with some ideas or some models for, for doing, because I do think um, beyond this sense of you know shared chaos in the world, but we are in this really nuanced academic environment where we're navigating shared governance and constrained resources and you know shifting sands and uncertainty that to, to be able to turn to others who are also navigating that and learn um, alongside them, but also contribute your, your talents and your skills to their successes. I see a lot of future here, which is, you know, perhaps not surprising why I said, hey, I, I want to go be a part of this and contribute, contribute what I can. Mm -hmm. And, you know, my perspective has been more kind of from the perspective as somebody who was a provost who was trying to do this kind of stuff and seeing that, um, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm frustrated that institutions like Mills and Notre Dame Denomer here in the Bay Area are, are you know, giving up instead of trying to find ways to, to move forward um, that are, that can continue their undergraduate programs. Because, you know, it's so funny, there's this, these, this really weird dynamic going on where there's more and more, um, you know, students who need, who want to go to college, really. It, we, we talk about this demographic click, but, you know, the UCs had a, you know, they had a 30,000, you know, they're already over 200,000 applications and they, they have another 30,000, you know, more than last year applying. And so I think that there, you know, I, I just believe that there's more and more people who want to be educated, mm -hmm. whether they're the typical 18 year old or the 25 year old who wants to, to, you know, start a new skill, right. um, you know, all of that. So I, I think that there's just so many opportunities out there and really this, I'm a big fan of the small co smaller colleges because I think they serve students from low income and, and, you know, uh, first generation backgrounds very well, you know, mm -hmm. not every student wants to go to the big university and some are better off at a small private um, and we need that that kind of you know broad array of different kinds of institutions offering different kinds of programs. And so if we could find you know this and but I also you know at having been a provost again, you know I find that we're not very collaborative in higher ed. We're, we see each other as competitors. We see each other as you know fighting over the same set of students. And so it just causes us to um, you know 
be in a situation where we aren't at our necessarily doing our best to, to, you know, find new ways to come together. Yeah. Well, it's almost like a game theory thing too. I think when people are in that fight or flight uh, mode, uh, everyone's protecting themselves. They're not comfortable being vulnerable and they frequently can't get past that sort of initial state of distrust. And, and then if you compound that with the fact that some folks have been structurally in places that are not uh, particularly accommodating, welcoming, they don't feel included, uh, you could see how it gets, it gets tricky. Uh, and I'm fascinated by Deb is doing interesting work here, I believe with her <laughs> AV setup. Is that what's going on? My awesome 11 year old, I was, I just texted him on Discord. I'm like, my computer's about ready to die and the power cord's upstairs. So we've got it rigged up. Nice. I, I wanted to speak to, you know, this competition thing because it's super important. It's real. Of course, you have to look out for your, your individual institution's interest. And to me, one of the big insights here is, again, you don't have to do everything together. You find That's the right. things that make sense to align on and you pursue those. Mm-hmm. And just because you say yes to option A or you know collaboration A doesn't mean you have to, to now do the same things together all the time. You do what makes sense for your institution. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I guess, you know, we're, we're getting close to winding up here um you know if i guess if i wanted to jump in and and figure out you know what's one thing that we could kind of do as a takeaway for people who are listening to this is you know that it's really important to explore right I, i think that's that's what i would encourage people to do is don't you know, be you know, we're, people see higher ed is so hidebound, and we're all about the status quo, and it's we've always done it this way. Um, and you know, I really I feel like I was so incredibly lucky to spend the last three years just kind of exploring the broader world of in a, what's going on in terms of innovation and mm-hmm. educational technology. And mm-hmm. you know, we've talked a lot about you know agile and taking an agile approach and 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 all of that. And and you know, the I think it, what. I would love to see more higher ed leaders do is to start exploring these things. Just take a, you know, a little bit of time and look around you, get your, you know, p- peek up over the, you know, your, the, the ivory tower, and, you know, start seeing, seeing what's going on. Because I, one of my biggest complaints as I've been out and about going, you know, in pre-COVID in the before times, you know, going around to different um uh, conventions and, and conferences and, and now webinars is that there's so much going on out here mm-hmm. and there's so many exciting things. And I'm so excited to be getting back in the classroom and all these things I've learned about online and, and mm-hmm. you know, gamification and, and all that I'm going to bring into the classroom. Right. And it's because I've spent the time over the last few years and it doesn't, t- you know, it's, it's not, you know, people, oh, I'm so busy. It's like, we don't, we can't afford to not be looking at what's going on in more broadly in higher education and really taking the time to explore and understand what are the various options and and saying, you know, just being willing to say, yeah, maybe we need to try something different. And so I guess that's the, the big takeaway I have. I love that. And, and so the model that I work with at MICO, I call it the collaborative action model. And it starts with this notion of exploring that there's, there's nothing wrong or risky with asking, what if, imagine if. And to me, the other um, piece of advice is to have a real heart to heart with yourself about what is the, not just the return on investment. And I know we, you know, we start thinking dollars and whatnot, but what really, what's the cost of inaction? So if we don't do this, 
What are we leaving on the table for our institutions, for the students, for our communities? Um, and then asking why now? Why is now the right time? Um, especially with all the, you know, the pandemic and the racial injustice where it feels this idea of the walls are, are caving in um, and not necessarily wanting to react in crisis because of course it makes sense that you wanna kind of turn inward and be self-protective. But there's also evidence, at least in the corporate setting, that those or, or those corporations that reach out and are more collaborative during times of crisis, they fare better too. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is there is something self-protective about stepping outside of the zero-sum game thinking. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, and there'll be more of uh, more dollars coming into the higher ed space. It looks like as well too. So I think the. The false scarcity is something uh, I talk about a lot when I think about higher ed. A lot of it is positioned as uh, a scarcity dynamic, which I somewhat to for nefarious uh, objectives at times. I think just to, if you create that false scarcity, I think it, it allows you to get away with things that maybe otherwise you couldn't. And I think if you flip it sort of the way uh, you were describing it, Terry, and you think about where is there actually an abundance of opportunity uh, I think it's frequently on, you know, treating the the people who are not actually served by higher ed today, the people who are being betrayed by it. Uh, frankly, uh, that's a huge population. That's a big problem, and that problem doesn't end when someone's 24. Mm -hmm. Like you're you're setting them on a course that may not ultimately end up favorable to them. So I, I think almost like a reset around the mission around who these institutions serve um, is something that uh, I, I think it's a, it's like almost a reckoning point on that front where like, if you don't know who you're serving and you don't have a mission in service of their outcomes, and maybe you're not thinking broadly about who they could be, um, there's a lot of danger out there. So, you know, I, I do think folks will need to rely on trusted guides. I like to talk about Sherpas. You both seem like Sherpas, uh, leading Sherpas in the space. But, um, you know, it's nice that you're both out there helping folks figure it out. It's nice that we're here each uh, each uh, Wednesday-ish, uh, Terry, talking about yeah, it. Yeah. You know, final <laughs> final uh, concluding thoughts, bring it at home. Well, I'll, I'll give Deb the, the chance to do her final concluding thoughts first. Just that it's, uh, there really are so many possibilities here and talk about an abundance. So higher ed is loaded with ideas, loaded with smart people, with good mm -hmm. hearts. And if ever there's a situation where we can do together and do well by our students and by our missions, it's in this space that we love and that we inhabit. Absolutely. And I'm a big fan of higher ed and I think it's important. I think we need to get, you know, provide, I mean, student success and student access is what I'm all about. And I really believe it's important for higher ed leaders to have that in front of them as they go forward and remember that, you know, this is our mission. You know, it's funny, somebody was saying, you know, student success, why is this new? <laughs> it's, it's what we're all about. So I'll, I'll end there. Yeah. <laughs> all right. That was great. Uh, we, and then who pushes the button? We're, I'll push we, the button. Nice. Thanks, everyone, for joining. Thanks. Bye, guys.